We're in our second message in the book of Ruth, and um, I'm going to actually bail out of this message at some point along the way. There's no way I can make it through all of Ruth chapter 2, but I want to set up some things that I didn't have time to do last week. I want to just set this up uh, historically as we think about all the things that are going on. This is kind of the overview of the uh, of the Old Testament. There's actually just 11 books that carry the storyline. If you ever wanted to just read the storyline through the Old Testament, uh, you'd need to read Genesis, Exodus, uh, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, then 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, uh, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah. You read those books, you've read the storyline. But to set this up historically, some dates along the way, the exodus from Israel. When Moses led uh, the children of Israel out, they wandered 40 years in the desert after that, and then uh, spent about 10 years conquering the land, and then about 380 years uh, were spent during the period of judges that we have spent a lot of time covering. All of that narrative coming out of Egypt starts in about 1446 BC. We are on the other end of that, moving up toward um, the, the birth of David, which we can date pretty solidly as 1041 BC. Um, now, the events of the book of Ruth take place before that. Uh, David's reign starts in 1010 BC. Remember, we're getting smaller because we're moving towards zero. Um, and if you take the birth of David and his reign, which we can date pretty solidly, and you take the, uh, the, the information we get in the book of Ruth, that there's a couple of generations back, I'm going to put uh, the timing of the story of Ruth around 1150. Now, you have to estimate how old these people would have been 30, 40 years old when they started to have children. But around 1150 BC is the area of time that we are talking about. Um, this book of Ruth, uh, I, I wish I had more time to show you just the beauty of how this thing is unfolding. Uh, there is a, a lot of uh, symmetry. There are a lot of uh, literary things that are going on in the book that show how God is reversing everything. We, we, we are in a time where the events of the book of Judges are going on all around them, and God is active in the midst of a hostile world, in the midst of a world where even God's people are moving rapidly away from him, where God is active in this little family in the little town of Bethlehem, a family where there probably were, a town where there are probably only 20 families. Um, and, and the overall message of this book is captured well. Uh, Alan Ross says this, um, very few books in the Bible emphasize the sovereignty of God more than the book of Ruth. However, it does it in a hidden and subtle way. It kind of sneaks up on you in this book. Um, you're reading the story, and the characters are wonderful. I'm going to try to give you some uh, ways to connect with these characters today. But, but throughout this book, the hidden hand of God, um, how Danny Hayes calls it, um, God working behind the scenes. God, God is so sovereignly working, but it kind of sneaks up on you because you get caught up in the story and this is happening and this is happening. And there are some subtle clues along the way that let you know that God is in control of all of this, moving you from the opening line of the, of the book, in the times when the judges reigned, chaos, to the very last word of the book, David. How did we get from the time when the judges reigned or ruled, when, when everything is falling apart, and you're wondering why God is not giving up on Israel, to the birth of the greatest king who is the ancestor of Jesus the Messiah? How do you get there? Well, it's God's faithful working 
throughout all of these stories. I've put together a number of resources for you out there again today. There's a lot of resources. Uh, one is on this whole background of a kinsman redeemer. We're going to meet Ruth, uh, Ruth's kinsman redeemer, Boaz, today. And, and if you want to understand the background of that, there's an article by Charles Schwab out there uh, that I encourage you to, to, to read. It's really good. There's one where he focuses on just Ruth the Moabitess and some of the concerns um, that you might have had when this Moabitess shows up in your community. I'm going to highlight some of that today. And then Mary Evans has done some character studies that are really, really, really well done. But at the center of this book is this one word called hesed. And I've got a study out there. Again, I told you last week, I have four books on this one word. Um, and so I would <laughs> encourage you, at least read the one article by Lawson Younger on the meaning of hesed. Now, this, this word is so significant in Scripture. Again, I have four books on it. If you're going to read one of those books in addition to Lawson Younger's two pages I've given you on it, uh, Michael Card's book, Inexpressible, really captures it. And, and the title of the book is, this word chesed is so, so difficult to translate. He, he says it's inexpressible, but it is throughout the book of Ruth. Um, it, is, it is God's chesed, loyal love, covenant love, faithful love, merciful love toward us, and exactly what chesed is supposed to do, generating that kind of love toward others. Now, I've got up there, you can, if you get on Amazon, you can get a shirt that says Hesed on it. So I encourage you, you know, hey, if you want to just go overboard, read the article, buy a book, get a shirt. And I got one more for you. I saw this online and thought I'd just make it available. You can get a Hesed tattoo, a set of four, and it's only $10.99, temporary tattoos, so you can Hesed all over your body. And uh, that way you're not calling me, asking me, you know, if you've Google translated Hesed right for your tattoo that permanently puts something on your body um, wrong. So you get the temporary one and get it from Amazon. It'll be right. Uh, let's get into this story. There's some background you need to understand for this story. Some things are going to start to happen that um, are historically really distant from us, things we don't do. One of them is gleaning. Ruth in this story is going to glean in the fields of Boaz. Gleaning is uh, something that was set up in the law um, and, and I want to give you a little bit of background and actually even draw an application from this. Leviticus 19 says this, and Leviticus 19 is the center of the book of Leviticus, really showing you that at the core of all of these rituals that point to Jesus, that there's, there's, um, there's a love element in the middle of all of this, how God loves us, how we should love one another, um, and that love being expressed in very tangible ways. Leviticus 19.9 says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time to pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners. Um, th this idea of gleaning was something that was intentionally done. Don't, don't reap all the way to the edges of your field and don't go over them a second time. If there's stuff that's been left behind, leave them for the poor people and the foreigners, those who have made it to your land, who, who won't be landowners. They, uh, for whatever reason, they don't have access to, um, to, to resources. And so if you have the resources, you're supposed to make some of them available to other people. Um, Deuteronomy 24 says this, go back one. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, so that the Lord God may bless you in the work of your hands. 
Be generous. If, if God's given you more, if he's given you um, a, a large field, or if, if you're harvesting and somebody drops something off the truck, leave it. Um, because poor people, um, the, the fatherless, the widows, those who don't have an opportunity in an agricultural uh, setting, those who don't have those opportunities, those who do have the resources are supposed to be making that available to others. Um, and the primary thing that's being talked about here is um, don't harvest everything out of your field. Um, and in particular, it says don't harvest the corners of your field. Now, there's, there's an entire, in the Mishnah, there's an entire tractate. It's, uh, in my Mishnah, it's like 40 pages long. That's called corners, okay? And it's all of the regulations, because they're asking, okay, if you don't, if you don't have to, if, if, if a generous person is supposed to not harvest all the way to the edges of the corners, well, how big of a corner is that? You know, could it be one sixtieth? You know, I could go to the edge of my field, you know, and just not, not harvest that little square right there, and that'd be fine. Um, in all of the discussions, the rabbis conclude this. A generous man is a man who has large corners. Um, a, a very generous man might even leave um, one-fourth of his field unharvested. He, he would leave huge corners so that the poor could go to those corners and they could harvest in their fields. Um, before we even get into the message of Ruth, although Boaz is going to have a large field, Boaz is going to practice all of this. He's going to intentionally leave some stuff behind for Ruth. Um, I, I want to draw two conclusions here. And um, my guess is I'll offend everybody one way or another. So I understand that. I get it. But let me just draw two conclusions. First of all, God uses those who have much to help those who are hurting. Be generous with your resources and how God has blessed you. I'm going to say, tip like a movie star. If you've been given resources, you should use them to bless others. This, by the way, is built into the fabric of how God's running the world. Those who have a lot should use their resources to bless those who don't. Now, before you get too offended with me by saying those who have a lot should give to those who don't, um, I want to make the second point, and that is God expects those who are in need to make an effort and work hard. God doesn't say, if you have a large field, harvest it and go take it to the poor. He expects the poor to make efforts to go and do some work. This is not, not handouts. So I don't know which end of that you're on or which end of that you may be on in the next 20 years. But God has built into the fabric. If he's blessed you, use that blessing to bless others. And if you are in a place where you're in need, work hard. Don't just sit back and ask people to entitlement to take care of you. God has built it into the fabric of how the world should work because there's a cycle in this world. And you don't know when you're going to end up on either end of that. So gleaning is one of the principles that is woven into the fabric of the Bible, and we're going to see it in this passage. And it is Boaz's generosity that is going to be highlighted, and one of the reasons that God is going to bless him so much and bring him into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There's another background thing that's a little more complicated and um, uh, a little more uh, troubling, depending on how you view this, and it's this idea of a kinsman redeemer. Uh, let me read you some of the passages that talk about a kinsman redeemer. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor, and sell some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. 
Um, th- this, this kinsman redeemer, he's a family guardian. He's looking out for the interests of the family. And, and primarily, this was a property rights thing. We're going to see this play itself out in the book of Ruth. There's some other provisions to this as well. Um, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of the brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Uh, God is really important about, he's really concerned about family heritages. And this is the one where I'm just, I just go, this is Old Testament. We don't, we don't have to worry about this one applying it. You should be generous, gleaning, but I don't think we need to be figuring out how to marry brother-in-laws and all that. But in the Old Testament, God was very interested that family, a bunch of people are looking and just going, no way, you stay alive right now. I'm seeing women looking at men just saying, you stay alive. Um, I'm dying first. I'm dying first. Um, But God is very concerned about family heritage. Um, And part of this is because it's through these families that Messiah was going to be born. And so the purity of the family is really critical. And the point here isn't some creepy brother-in-law thing. The point here is don't marry outside your family. Uh, Keep this going. Um, Other passages say this, however, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, if you don't want to do this, by the way, there's not a legal penalty, there's just shame. If a man doesn't want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders of the town town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of the brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If she says, hey, he won't do this, they get him and here's what he says. If he persists in saying, I don't want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, talk, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not bind up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Um, this principle is going to be played, at, played out in the book of Ruth as well. At the end uh, of the book, we'll see this, and there's going to be a sandal exchange. And this whole sandal exchange, by the way, was how you exchange property. It was, you didn't have a contract, but you basically took your sandal off and gave it to somebody else to say, you can now walk on the property that I used to walk on. So that's why the exchange of the sandal is going on here. But there's no penalty. You can do this. It's just a shameful thing. Leviticus 25 says, if a foreigner residing among you becomes rich and any of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells themselves to the foreigner or to a member of the foreigner's clan, they retain the right of redemption after they have sold themselves. One of their relatives may redeem them, an uncle or a cousin or any blood relative. Now, this is where Ruth begins to play itself out. Any blood relative can do this. They may redeem them, or if they prosper, they may redeem themselves. You, you may be working for someone who allows you to uh, acquire resources for yourself. Um, these backgrounds you need to understand. I'm going to draw one quick application for this. God knows that we get ourselves into predicaments that we um, don't have the resources to get out of, and he makes provision for that. By the way, this is our whole situation, <laughs> Our sinful condition is a, is a situation we can't get out of. And the whole story of the Bible is he's making provision for that. But he also knows the person who redeems us can't be in debt themselves. They must be related to us. It's been God's plan for the, from the beginning. In, in the midst of this kinsman-redeemer thing, God understands we get ourselves in situations we can't solve ourselves. 
Someone related to us, like us, who's not in death themselves, has to solve our problem. This is Jesus Christ. Um, embedded in this book are these wonderful, wonderful principles. Now, we're going to slide into Ruth chapter 2, and I, I think you're going to see in, in all of these pairs in Ruth chapter 2, you're going to see um, these dialogues taking place. T today, we're going to see Ruth's initiative and, and the character of Boaz. That's how Ken Way titles the chapter. Ruth's initiative, um, she's working hard, she's poor, she's a widow, she's come back to the land, um, but she's going to take initiative. She's not just entitled and she's not just looking for a handout. She's taking initiative and we're going to see the character of Boaz. In all of this, there's these dialogues that go back and forth. First, first we're going to see Ruth talking to Naomi, then Boaz talking to his work, workers, Boaz talking to Ruth, Boaz talking to his workers again, and then Naomi talking to Ruth at the end of the passage. It's all these dialogues that carry the story, and they're absolutely fascinating. Kenway says this, God is present and active when his people take initiative and seek the welfare of others. Again, I'm, I'm putting some things together here. God is sovereignly doing all of this. It's very clear that God is sovereign and he is working in this, but it doesn't mean that the people in the story are passive. The people in the story are taking initiative. Ruth is going to take initiative to go out and harvest. Um, Boaz is a man of character. He's established it, and he's going to take note of things that are going on in his field, and he's going to make provision for, for others. It is like so many things. It's the blending of God sovereignly working, but his people taking initiative and being faithful uh, and living with character in their lives. So in the very first setup, we're going to see the sovereignty of God putting people in the right place at the right time, and they don't even know it. They're just taking initiative. But God is going to put them in the right place at the right time, and, and it kind of has this, it just so happened one day, um, but it's not just so happened one day. God is active and he is sovereign in the lives of his people but he's particularly guiding them when they have character. And we're going to see Boaz is a man with a reputation, but a good reputation. And a woman with a past, but a past that she has overcome. That's what we're going to see in this passage. Here we're going to start off. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech. Elimelech is Naomi's husband. And this guy's name is Boaz. He's called a man of standing. In Hebrew, this is a gibor hayel, very common phrase in the book in, in the Bible. Um, it's often translated a mighty man of valor, uh, a mighty warrior. Um, the idea of this guy is that he, he has good standing in the community. He's a man with a reputation. Everybody knows him. Um, he's a man of honor, usually wealthy. He has resources, and he uses those resources to benefit other people. He's not just wealthy because he's gaining more and more wealth for himself. He sees the blessings of God as an opportunity to bless others. He's a man of valor. Um, this same phrase, Gibor Hayel, this same phrase is um, used of warriors. But it's not just warriors who are strong fighters. It's warriors who have um, distinguished themselves and risen to places of influence. Um, this word, Hayel, a, a woman of valor, is going to be used of, of Ruth in Ruth chapter 3. 
It's also the very opening words of Proverbs 31.10, a woman of chayel, a woman of valor who can find. A lot of the translations uh, translate a, a virtuous woman who can find. And I want to I expand your understanding of virtuous. Virtuous doesn't mean she just, she's got good morals. She's a virtuous woman. I want you to think of virtuous as virtuoso. This is a woman who lives her life as a virtuoso. This is, this is a masterpiece of a person who lives their life well. Now, um, I've, I've explained the meaning of the word. I've even given you the Hebrew, a gibor hayel, um, a mighty man of valor. Boaz is this guy. Now, for some of you in the room, I'm going to just totally lose you. I get it. But for some of you, I'm going to make a connection. Um, Boaz is this guy. Boaz is Lord Grantham from uh, Downton Abbey. Um, he, he is a man who is wealthy, he's influential, he's powerful, he's an aristocrat, but he's a community benefactor. Yes, he owns Downton Abbey, but he employs a lot of people, and he is generous. He is a, a man of character. He's a, he's a wealthy man. This is Boaz Grantham. Well, if this is true, then this means that Cora Grantham is Ruth, okay? So she... Uh, if, parallels in so many ways. She's a foreigner. She's kind. She's loyal. She's gracious. She's faithful. So you put these two together and you get Ruth and Boaz Grantham. Okay. So for those of you who, how many of you have never seen Downton Abbey? Sorry, I'll move on in just a moment. Okay. (laughs) Um, But if you have seen Downton Abbey, this leaves one character for us. And I think the Dow just Countess Naomi. She's kind of bitter but lovable. She's kind of the center of the story. Everybody, everybody kind of can't wait for her to talk, and uh, she turns it around. Okay, I'm going to move on. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone who's, in whose eyes I find favor. Here's, here's Ruth taking the initiative. Um, it's interesting. Notice how she's, she's Ruth the Moabite. Um, she, she's She's a Moabite. By the way, Moabites, were, we'll learn a little bit more, Moabites were shunned in Israel. Um, Moabites have a very bad reputation, and it's highlighting the fact she's not Ruth, now the follower of Yahweh. They know her past. She's Ruth the Moabite. Um, if you know a little bit about the Moabites, the, the Moabites come from Lot and his two daughters after Sodom and Gomorrah, is destroyed. That's where the Moabites come from. The Moabites are famous for their immorality. Um, the, the two daughters give birth to the Moabites and the Ammonites. Whenever you read um, the description of the Ammonites, it's, it's often with the phrase, the detestable god of the Ammonites, uh, Chemosh, who, who would have been uh, one of the gods that uh, they practiced child sacrifice to. That's one of the girls of Lot's daughters who conceive. The Moabites are the people when Balaam is trying to curse uh, Israel, and he, he's not able to do it in Numbers chapter 22. He's not able to curse Israel, but he wants to get them in trouble anyways. He goes and he gets some Moabite girls to come and, and seduce the men, because that's what the Moabites were known for. They have bad, bad reputations. But here, Ruth the Moabitess, who you would have thought had a bad reputation, She's taking the initiative. Let me go into the fields, pick up the leftover grain 
Um, Naomi, you're, you're old, you're the widow, let me take care of this. I'm going to go make provision. John Piper says this, there's, there's no doubt that the writer wants us to admire and imitate Ruth. She takes initiative to care for her destitute mother-in-law. She's humble and meek and doesn't put herself forward presumptuously. She works hard from sunup to sundown. Initiative, lowliness, industry, worthy traits. We will see them again. I want you to see her character and her hard work and her initiative develop through this entire passage. Naomi says to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out... She was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech, as it turned out, okay? Um, some translations have, it just so happened. Um, the Hebrew phrase literally said, says, her chance chanced. I don't know if you can see uh, in the middle of the word, there's similar letters there. It's, it's the same word. Her chance chanced. She happened to happen upon the field of Boaz, um, this, this is um, just the irony and the hyperbole of, of putting it in this, in this way. It's not just she happened. It, he goes out of the way to say her happening happened to show up just by coincidence in this field. This isn't mere chance. This is the hidden sovereign hand of God. Again, even the very words that they're choosing put all of this together. Um, Bob Chisholm says, One can imagine the narrator winking at the reader as he wrote this. Rather than promoting a theology of chance, the narrator was highlighting God's sovereign control of human affairs. And by reflecting Ruth's perspective, he showed this encounter with Boaz was not something Ruth or Naomi engineered. From Ruth's perspective, she randomly picked a field, but God was steering her to the right field that would eventually result in her redemption her having a child, and that child being David, the ancestor of Jesus, which gets Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus. So God is sovereign in this. God is sovereignly directing her to the exact right place. And then what we're going to see is get in the right place, God's going to make abundant provision in, in a surprising but unexpected way. <laughs> Ruth is going to, Boaz is going to show up, he's going to go, who's that girl in my field? Um, and, and Boaz is going to be the one who makes the provision for her. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, greeting the harvesters. Look at his character. I mean, he's, there's spirituality all over this guy. Uh, the Lord bless you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of the harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? By the way, he doesn't say, who is that one young woman? Who does that young woman belong to? Do you, you understand the question he's answered? He's answering or asking, is she married? I, I've, I've noticed that girl. She's not been here before. Is she married? Um, the overseer replied, she's the Moabite. By the way, there's a bite in how he says that. She's the Moabite who came from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Um, this is where you pick up. She's, she's been gleaning all day. She's working hard. She just took a, a really short rest in the shelter. Now, this guy's attitude towards her is reflecting something that is mildly legitimate. Um, Deuteronomy 23 says this, No Amorite 
or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation, for they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Peor, from Pethor in Aram Hiram to pronounce a curse on you. These people are bad people. <laughs> Don't have anything to do with it. She's, she's Ruth the Moabite. Um, the, the foreman doesn't have a positive attitude towards her. And to some degree, it's legitimate. I mean, this passage has to be reckoned with. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. And yet she ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. I, I think the really important point is captured well by Alan Ross. The law says Ruth cannot be accepted into the community of Israel because she's a Moabitess, but grace says she can. The law says no. The law says she's guilty, she's disqualified. Grace says, no, she can't. Grace trumps law. Grace trumps law. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the, uh, watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow after the young women. I have told these young men, and that's it's the word for men there is young men, not to lay a hand on you. The word there is assault. I told them not to harm you. Um, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that they have filled. Um, there's some things if you read and you kind of go, why is he saying all of this to her? Um, I think it's put together really well by Lawson Younger. Ruth was leaving the field as Boaz arrived. He says, don't go to another field. Who's that woman? And it looks like she's leaving because he says, hey, don't go to another field. She was getting ready to go to another field. I wonder why she was getting ready. Maybe it's because the young men were making her uncomfortable. He says, don't assault her. Don't harass her. They were probably taking advantage of her reputation. She's unworthy. She's, she's, she's low class. We don't have to really take care of her. And he says, hey, you can get water anytime you want. It looks like maybe she was getting water, and, and they said, hey, get out of here. <laughs> you can glean, but now you're trying to get water. You can't have any water. And they're, take, they're taking advantage of her. They're mistreating her. And he says, hey, don't go to another field. Tell you what, <laughs> I'm telling these guys not to harm you anymore, and you can get water anytime you want. I'll take a break here. Um, wrap this first half into a conclusion. You're going to see this develop more clearly through the rest of the story, but God providentially protects and guides his chosen people as they take initiative and seek to bless others. Ruth is doing that with Naomi, and Boaz is going to do that with Ruth, and God is going to providentially protect and guide them all along the way. So um, some next steps halfway through this chapter. <laughs> I want to encourage you, both, both Ruth and Boaz have stellar reputations in the community. What's your reputation? How do people think of you? Do they think of you as a person who's living their life as a virtuoso? Or are you the neighbor everybody wants to avoid? Um, when you go to a restaurant, are people glad that you arrive because you tip like a movie star? Or are people like, oh my gosh, here's that demanding couple one more time? How do they see you? 
And if, are you known as a person who, who works hard, who takes initiative, or are you seen more as the person who's entitled? The interaction of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility has been a point of contention uh, for theologians for millennia. Um, how, can, how can they work together? God is sovereign, and yet they're taking initiative. Um, Philippians chapter 2 puts it this way, work out your own salvation because God is at work in you. I don't know how better I can phrase it than that, but you see it in this story. They're taking initiative, and yet God is sovereignly preparing. And then I want to challenge you to take one other step. Tell one person a story this week when God was working behind the scenes in your life, and you didn't know it at the time. You didn't know you would happen to come upon the field of Boaz. Tell a story. Look back and just go, yeah, there, there, are, there are stories. Because God doesn't leave himself without a witness in your life. Tell somebody a story and just say, you know what? There was this time. I didn't know what was going on at the time. But I, I can see now that God was making provision. God was preparing me for exactly what I knew um, I know now I needed. And I was just bumping along through life. But God was faithful, subtly, secretly, to make provisions. Um, this story is full of great characters and great principles. But these principles um, are, are playing themselves out in the, in the lives of a just day-to-day -day family. Not a priestly family, no prophets. No, there's no worship ceremonies that are going on here. This is just day-to-day -day life. And yet God has got his hand actively involved in all of this, and it's instructive for every one of us. Father, in the midst of our lives, may you find us faithful and reliable and um, taking initiative and blessing others. Father, may we see your sovereignty as we look back and trust your sovereignty as we move forward. Father, we commit ourselves to living lives um, that are respectable, that are following you, but relying on you to meet our every need. And we ask you to do that in Christ's name. Amen.